It does the gospel harm when the Christian is the offense. Now, don't misunderstand me. We preach the gospel. We are faithful to the truth. Preach the singularity of Jesus Christ. There is no way to the Father apart from Him. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of a three-part series with Pastor Paul Twiss titled, Paul's Gospel and Ours. Pastor's text for this series is the 26th chapter of the New Testament book of Acts. Much of Paul the Apostle's story is chronicled for us in the Acts of the Apostles, written by Luke, also the author of the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. In this chapter, Paul is being held captive in Caesarea in Judea while on his way to Rome. And while there, one of his questioners is Herod Agrippa, the reigning king of Judea. What the apostle tells the king is a proclamation of the gospel, begun by his personal salvation story. How he communicates it to the king is an important lesson for all believers. Here's part one of Paul's Gospel and Ours. We're going to look at uh, this narrative in Acts 26, verses 1 through 23. The text reads, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So reads the word of the living God. The title for our sermon this evening is Paul's Gospel and Ours. Paul's Gospel and Ours. It's not often that Michael calls me at 7.30 on a Sunday morning. We have had a few phone conversations at that time, I think, but it's strange when it happens, and I wonder what's gone wrong. And of course, Michael explains that our pastor's sick, can you preach this evening? And I agree. And then it's afterwards that my breakfast doesn't look so appealing anymore, because now I have to figure out what to say this evening. And I thought, where, where would I go in the Bible? Where, where shall I go to to preach, and of course, Acts 26. I'm kidding, of course, why would we go to Acts 26? <laughs> I would say that very few people know what's going on in this last portion of Acts. 20 through 28 is a, a part of this long narrative that we don't tend to know too well, far less understand. Uh, there is a reason immediately, a very practical reason, and then there's a, a bigger, more important reason why I would go here this evening. Uh, the practical reason is that on Tuesday of this week just gone, I started teaching a Logos class considering the life and the writings of Paul the Apostle, and we spent two hours walking through the narrative of Acts. So my mind was very much in the theology and in the storyline of this wonderful book, and it was fairly easy for me to go there and to try and pick up this particular narrative and think through a sermon on this text. But more importantly than that, there is great use for us and great importance for us in these closing portions of the book of Acts, particularly here in Acts 26, when we read again for the third time in this book of Paul's Damascus Road experience. Paul has influenced biblical Christianity maybe more than any other man in history, save the Lord Jesus Christ. As you know, so much of our New Testament comes from the hand of Paul. He wrote 13 of the letters. And so whether we acknowledge it or not, our Christianity is very Pauline. We live out the letters that he gave to the church. 
that begs the question, well, where did Paul get his theology from? Where did he get his concept of the gospel from that has so influenced the way in which we seek to honor the Lord Jesus? Now, you can read hundreds of books on the life and the theology of Paul, and a number of them, a lot of them, minimize the Damascus Road experience. Many scholars would say that the Damascus Road experience really didn't affect Paul's theology all that much because, their argument is, he doesn't reference this experience very often. If you walk through the New Testament epistles, he doesn't give long and lengthy accounts of what happened to him when he was saved. I think actually the reason that he doesn't always go there is because of his humility. He's not concerned to continually set himself forth But it's true that when he's pressed, when he needs to defend his apostleship, as he does in the book of Galatians, this is where he turns. More than that, we do find in the New Testament epistles, if not explicit references, many, many allusions tucked away in his articulation of the gospel back to this event here. To the degree that I would argue that this is something of a nucleus for Paul in his thinking. What happened to Paul on the Damascus Road really does serve to fuel his preaching of the gospel and the theology that flows out from that that he gives to us in his epistles. And so as we seek to live out a biblical Christianity, it is so important that we understand Paul's gospel, that we understand what happened to him on the Damascus Road, because the themes that are prevalent in this one experience become very, very important as he addresses the churches. And in turn, if we're living out a biblical discipleship, a walking after Christ, then they should be important themes for us. Paul's gospel should be our gospel. So this evening, we're just going to walk through the narrative, and I have uh, maybe five or six different themes that come out from this Damascus Road experience that we then see bleed over into the epistles and become emphases for us in our Christian life. The first is that Paul preaches the gospel in a winsome way. We're considering here just the first few verses before we even get to a consideration of what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. It is important to see that the way in which Paul recounts this story is in a very winsome way. Look again at the first few verses. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Paul there is not stretching out his hand to to silence people. Most likely what Paul is doing there is stretching out his hand to greet the king. He's honoring the king and, and being polite to the king before he starts to speak. He then says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today. Again, he's honoring the king. Agrippa was known for his piety. He was also known for for his own knowledge of the Jewish customs. And so Paul is in no way being obnoxious or arrogant or blunt. He's addressing the king and honoring the king and saying, I'm really glad that I get to tell you, specifically you, Agrippa, my testimony today. He goes on especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. 
And there is Paul's closing appeal before he walks into the narrative of his salvation. And notice how Paul is seeking to endear himself to this king. Please, Agrippa, O king, would you listen to me patiently? Again, the the way in which Paul is communicating here is in a very winsome way and in a way that acknowledges who his audience is. And Paul is not unique in this sense. As you walk through the book of Acts, something that dominates the narrative that we can't escape is the number of speeches you see in the book of Acts. There are 19 speeches in the book of Acts, which means you can barely get through one or two chapters without coming across yet another speech. And scholars have noticed there are certain things that are common to all of those speeches. There are evangelistic speeches in the book of Acts. In the evangelistic speeches, the content always adheres to the same kind of agenda, which is a proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, some kind of offer of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins, based upon a requirement to repent, turn away from sin, and express faith in Christ. All of the evangelistic speeches have those factors in common. And then more broadly, all of the speeches, evangelistic or not, in the book of Acts, all 19 of them demonstrate two things. Number one, an emphatic proclamation of the truth, which I would argue becomes a point of obedience for us as we refuse to be ashamed of the gospel, refuse to hide the faith that we have, but are pleased to declare it. But that bold proclamation note is coupled with what I call an audience consciousness. What you'll see as you trace the speeches through the book of Acts is that every apostle pays heed to the people that he is speaking to. None of them are arrogant, obnoxious, but what they seek to do is communicate the gospel in a way that is effective. Communicate the gospel in a way that is winsome. Communicate a gospel which pays attention to the particular thought system or worldview of those that are hearing it. And so before we even walk into the narrative, it is so important for us to realize that part and parcel of our Christian faith is living in the world in such a way that we are cognizant of the unbelievers around us, their thought system, their worldview, and that we communicate in a way that is winsome. It does the gospel great harm when Christians are pugnacious. It does the gospel harm when the Christian is the offense. Now, don't misunderstand me. We preach the gospel. We are faithful to the truth. Preach the singularity of Jesus Christ. There is no way to the Father apart from him. Preach the reality of the atonement. The way in which I'm brought into a right relationship with God is because a man was crucified. That's not a message the world likes to hear. Preach the gospel. But if there is going to be an offense, it should be the message that is the offense and not the messenger. You see this even when Paul goes into his letters to the churches, he's always molding and shaping his communication of the gospel 
to address the particular issue in the church that he's writing to. So when you open the letter to the Corinthians, there's so much talk about wisdom. I don't know if you've noticed that. He's always framing the gospel in terms of wisdom, Christ being the very wisdom of God, he says. Why is that? It's because Paul's thinking about his audience and he knows the Corinthian church have latched on to a particular type of worldly wisdom that they're very proud of. And he's breaking that down and saying, no, no, let me tell you the gospel and I'll frame the gospel in terms of wisdom so that it pierces your thought system right now. In like manner, when he writes to the the church in Ephesus, he talks about power and strength, the force of the gospel and the victory of the cross being lived out through the church according to the ministry of the Spirit. Why so much talk about power? Because the contextual situation in the book of Acts that you read about in Ephesus is of many, many secular pagan religions that are making claims to triumphing over all other belief systems. And Paul says to that church, we have a gospel that triumphs, that is victorious, and you are the people that proclaim that victory in your living. Think about the letter to the Galatians and how Paul frames the gospel in yet another way there, speaking so much in Old Testament terminology. In chapters 5 and 6, he's, he's so pleased to keep leaning on Old Testament language, Old Testament narrative. Why so much in that particular letter? Because as you know, the issue that the Galatians are struggling with is assuming the act of circumcision in addition to faith in Christ as the means by which they're saved. And so Paul molds yet again his communication of the gospel so that it's effective to his hearers. Christian, if you're to be effective, winsome, endearing in your communication of the gospel, you need to think hard about that gospel. You have to think hard about the gospel. You have to seek to plumb the depths of the gospel, trusting that the riches and the profundity of the gospel is indeed sufficient to speak to any worldview or thought system. That is the way in which Paul enters into this narrative, and it becomes instructive for us. The second theme or emphasis that we note is that Paul preaches a gospel of resurrection theology. Paul preaches a gospel of resurrection theology. Look at verses 4 through 8 again. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. So Paul makes two claims here, and that is that I've always been a Jew and that I was a Pharisee. I had the opportunity to visit Israel for the first time this summer just gone, and I spent many hours in the old city in Jerusalem. And within the old city, I really enjoyed going to the Jewish quarter. And I would just wander around the streets and explore, just fascinated by the layers upon layers of history. And there was one day in particular where I just came across a school. So here's a school 
in the Jewish quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. And there's these schoolboys racing around the streets. And if you've been there, you'll know the streets are very small and you can easily get lost in them. They feel like something of a labyrinth. And I just observed these young Jewish boys racing around these streets. They knew them like the back of their hand. They were running around like they owned that place. And it just occurred to me, 2,000 years ago, one of these boys is Paul, Saul, running around as a Jewish boy. He's always been a Jew, is what he says. And then he says, more than that, I was a Pharisee. Now, we'll return to that point in just a minute. Suffice it to say for now that Paul wasn't half-hearted in his Judaism. Paul knew the law and he sought to keep the law. What Paul then does is he makes, draws a line of continuity from the Old Testament to the New. So notice he says, verse 6, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He's already said in verse 5, our religion. Verse 7, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. What is the, the point of continuity that he's making? It's the very reason that he's standing on trial. Verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? It is the concept of the resurrection. Paul is drawing this line of continuity between Old Testament and New based upon the doctrine of the resurrection. You have to understand that the Old Testament espouses a theology of resurrection that form very much the Jewish hope of the day. Passages like Isaiah 26, Ezekiel 37, and Daniel chapter 12. All of them speak clearly about the concept of the resurrection. Now, here's what's fascinating. The Jewish concept, the hope, the expectation built into the Old Testament is that that resurrection happens at the end of the ages. That resurrection sits on the horizon of redemptive history. That's what they were waiting for. Why has Paul got himself in so much trouble? Because Paul saw on the Damascus road the resurrected Christ. The vision that Paul had was not of Christ on a cross, which is maybe what you would expect. Nor did he see Christ in his earthly ministry before the cross. The vision that the Lord saw fit to show him was the resurrected Christ. And this then forms the basis of his message. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has chosen a narrative out of the book of Acts, a conversation not often spotlighted. We've asked the pastor to join us in a brief conversation, so welcome, Pastor Paul. The topic of your series, The Apostle Paul's Defense Before King Agrippa, is rarely preached. Matt, I think that's true. It's not a popular text. It's a historical narrative, and King Agrippa's response is inconclusive. However, this is often quite common in our own lives. After witnessing for Christ, we often don't learn the result of our testimony. But Paul's way of sharing the gospel is very important for us. The apostle was winsome, thoughtful, and importantly, 
he spoke of the resurrected Christ. Thanks, Pastor, for these important insights, and we look forward to part two tomorrow. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. We invite you to our website. It's timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, you'll learn about our purpose of spreading the good news of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. The website is timelesstruthtoday.org. Join us tomorrow as we continue in our series with part two of Paul's Gospel and Ours. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.